Hello, my name is Janet and I am the host of the Painting Stories podcast. Welcome to episode two, Lost, Light and Luxury, the top six. My podcast guide to the must-see paintings in the National Gallery in London. I am an art historian and I will tell you the stories behind six of the best-known paintings in the gallery. This is an introduction to London's National Gallery through six of its best-known artworks. This tour lasts around an hour, with ten minutes in front of each painting. If you would like to hear one of my longer tours of the National Gallery, including the top ten or the top fifteen paintings, please visit my Patreon page. Go to www.patreon.com and search for Painting Stories Podcast. During this tour, and by looking at these paintings, you will learn about the Italian Renaissance, English Tudor history, the Spanish Inquisition, 19th century French society, and the tragic story of Vincent van Gogh. As well as getting to know the paintings we visit in a lot of detail, you will understand why, even hundreds of years after they were made, they are considered important masterpieces and also why the names of the artists are still so well known today. One of the most important themes that runs through this particular podcast is that of change. The art of the past shows us that the world and people's lives have always been subject to upheaval and transformation, whether that's because of new technologies, ruthless leaders or ordinary people taking matters into their own hands. When our own world feels so turbulent, there is something quite reassuring about knowing that people have always lived and struggled through change. And it is lovely to reach this understanding through such beautiful paintings. Although this podcast focuses on only six key paintings in this fabulous gallery, I will also refer to others which you can look at after the end of the tour. What you will learn whilst listening to the tour in front of the paintings will also help you to know what to look out for in many of the other amazing artworks in the National Gallery in London and how to better understand them. The podcast is approximately one hour and a quarter long, but on top of this, you will also need time to walk between the paintings. And I suggest that you pause the podcast while you do this and begin it again while standing in front of the artwork. During the podcast, I refer to the numbers of the room where each of the paintings can be found. I therefore recommend that you have a gallery floor plan, which you can find online, to make finding the rooms and therefore each painting easier. I hope you enjoy the podcast just as much as I have enjoyed making it. Our first painting is Titian's Bacchus and Ariadne, which is in room 10. Please make your way to this painting by Titian, pausing the podcast now and restarting it when you're standing in front of the painting. You should now be standing in front of Bacchus and Ariadne, painted by Titian between 1520 and 1523. Titian is considered by many to be the greatest painter of the Italian Renaissance. He is amongst some pretty formidable competition for this title. For example, from Michelangelo, 
who was regarded as producing the most skilled drawings, Leonardo, who was a multi-talented inventor and scholar as well as an artist, and Raphael, who was the most versatile of the Renaissance artists. Here, Titian puts his painting talent to work on narrating a story and bringing it to life with the sparkling energy and a riot of colour and detail. The story is of Bacchus and Ariadne, which originates from Greek mythology. In the Renaissance, there was a resurgence in interest in Greek and Roman myths and they became popular subjects for paintings. This is because... Italians had a longing to recreate the mighty Roman Empire and so believed that stories from ancient civilizations held insights into how to regain its power and status. Titian used two versions as the source for his painting of the Bacchus and Ariadne story told by the Roman poets Ovid and Catullus. He was commissioned by the Duke of Ferrara to paint this subject and received translations of these poems from their original Latin to help him. In the story, Ariadne has been cruelly abandoned by Theseus, who he can see in the painting sailing off into the distance over Ariadne's left shoulder. In Catullus's retelling of the myth, Ariadne is supposedly furious as well she might be, having helped the ungrateful Theseus kill the monstrous Minotaur who had the head of a bull and the body of a man. This had happened on the island of Crete, following which the couple had travelled together to Naxos when the fickle Theseus abandoned Ariadne while she slept. Rather than enraged, in Ovid's poem, Ariadne is described as distraught, dishevelled and desperate, her cheeks bedewed with tears. This is the version that Titian seems to have captured as Ariadne holds her hand out longingly towards Theseus's disappearing ship. As she wails in distress, Ariadne suddenly hears an almighty racket of cymbals and as Ovid says, drums beaten by frenzied hands. This sound of revelry announces the arrival of Bacchus, god of wine, fertility and debauchery, along with his rowdy entourage. Ovid describes tigers pulling Bacchus's chariot, but Titian has painted two cheetahs, and very realistically too, for someone who was unlikely to have had easy access to such a cat. Perhaps then there is a hint of truth to the rumour that the Duke of Ferrara had a cheetah in his menagerie. And Titian used artistic licence with the story to include cheetahs as they were the only models for big cats available to him. The women that you see in Bacchus's convoy are the female maenads, whose names are taken from the Greek maenades, which literally means the mad or demented ones. Apparently possessed by the god Bacchus, they performed frenzied, ecstatic dances. They are accompanied by satyrs, drunken, lustful, woodland spirits, part human, but with the legs, ears or horns of goats and other animals. The satyr closest to us has a serpent entwined around his body. And with this, Titian is showing that not only is he narrating an ancient myth through this painting, 
but he is also giving us an updated version of ancient art. The figure is based on an ancient sculpture called the Lyocoon, which had been unearthed in Rome 15 years prior to this artwork being made. There has been lots of debate as to whether the Lyocoon is ancient Greek or Roman, but Renaissance artists and patrons were in awe of it, and you can see it today in the Vatican in Rome. The Laocoon sculpture is based on a Greek myth about a Trojan priest and his two sons who were crushed to death by two huge sea serpents. The three figures in the sculpture are twisted as they tried to escape from the snakes curled around them. Titian almost copies the arm of the priest directly from the sculpture. Whilst that satyr wrestles a large snake, Bacchus's hedonistic followers have evidently been on the rampage. One satyr, with vine leaves around his waist, holds up a calf's leg, and the child satyr at the front of the painting drags along a calf's head, looking out at us as if this is a perfectly normal thing to do. One of the group lags behind, passed out drunk and perilously slumped on the back of a donkey. There is lots to see in this painting. And Titian continues with the next part of the Greek myth in the top left quarter of the work, where he captures the magical moment of love at first sight between Bacchus and Ariadne. Bacchus's face shows that he is spellbound, only aware of Ariadne, despite the drunken revelry that surrounds him. Bacchus leaps from his chariot without caring how and where he might land with the single-minded focus on making Ariadne his bride. She looks towards him. And can we read in her face a trace of the possibility that Bacchus's love is reciprocated? To reinforce this romantic moment of instant connection, Titian includes a white caper flower, a symbol of love, at the bottom centre of the painting. The final part of the myth is above Ariadne, in the top left corner of the painting. According to Ovid, Bacchus threw the wedding crown worn by Ariadne into the sky, where it becomes the eight-star constellation called the Corona Borealis, or Northern Crown. There are so many emotions captured by Titian in this painting, from despair and longing to riotous abandon and love-struck impulsiveness. The artist, in his 30s when he painted this work, was not yet established in his career that would eventually span 65 years. So this painting was a fabulous opportunity for Titian, as the Duke of Ferrara had commissioned him alongside some of the top and more established artists of the day. All of the paintings were to be hung in the same room. The Duke wanted to recreate a picture gallery along the same lines as those described in ancient Greek texts. Each of the paintings would be made to a specific size for the Duke's study and he and his guests would spend time contemplating these beautiful artworks. Titian narrates an entire Greek myth from start to finish, a difficult thing to achieve in one painting. He also gave the Duke and his friends plenty of detail to explore. 
If you look closely at the bottom right of the painting, for example, you will see a beautiful and botanically accurate iris and columbine. The background shoreline and landscape is also worth looking at closely. Meticulously painted, it includes lovely details, such as the shifting light of the sun across the fields. Titian was particularly keen to hold his own against the mighty Michelangelo and Raphael, who had been also commissioned to make paintings for the Duke of Ferrara. He wanted to show that he was at least as good as Michelangelo at painting accurate, realistic, three-dimensional figures, moving their bodies in lots of different ways. This is something he certainly achieved in Bacchus and Ariadne. Titian also wanted the achievement of convincingly illustrating a figure leaping through the air. Until the Bacchus that you see in this painting, only Titian's rival Raphael had got close to painting such a challenging posture realistically with an angel that he created as part of a wall painting in Rome. In his determination to impress as the best painter of the time, Titian used only the rarest and most expensive colours, some of which, including the ultramarine used for the deep blue sky, were only available from his hometown of Venice. This city was a centre of trade with the East and gave Titian access to the rarest minerals from Asia. Using the colours from these, unmixed and therefore in their purest form, gives the painting a jewel-like quality. The expense, the attention to detail and Titian's careful consideration of the most effective way to tell the story of Bacchus and Ariadne, as well as convey a range of emotions, pays off in this beautiful painting. Sadly, however, it never got the chance to shine amongst paintings by Titian's great rival artists in the Duke's study. Raphael died too soon and Michelangelo, typically unreliable, didn't complete the commission. But Titian's career continued to go from strength to strength. Following this painting, he was commissioned by Italian nobles, a pope, three Holy Roman emperors and kings of France and Spain. We are now going to look at a painting made during England at the time of the Renaissance, Hans Holbein's The Ambassadors, which you will find in room 12. Please pause the podcast and restart it when you are standing in front of that painting. you're now looking at the ambassadors painted by Hans Holbein in 1533. This painting by a German painter tells us a great deal about what was going on in England and Europe at the time it was made. Some of the references made through the symbolism of the objects within the painting mirror Britain's position in the world today, making it a particularly interesting artwork to look at even nearly 500 years after it was made. Another reason that this is such a great painting is that it shows Hans Holbein's amazing technical skill. It really is worth getting up close to this artwork so that you can see all the details. 
Look, for example, at how Holbein shows how well he can use paint to show different textures, such as the glossy pink satin worn by the figure on the left. Also notice the lynx fur, which oozes luxury. And in particular, see if you can find the individual hairs of the fur, which Holbein picks out against the green curtain in the background. More of this exacting detail and the artist's talent is on display in the tiny gold toggles on the shoulders of the man's tunic. It's especially worth looking closely at the gold and blue tassel that this man is holding. Each gold strand of the tassel has been painted using a technique in which gold leaf is glued on top of blue paint. The result is exquisitely realistic. So who is this man so lavishly and expensively dressed? His name was John de Dantville and his clothes, being the height of fashion, intentionally display the elegance of his native France as well as his high status as a French diplomat. The gold scabbard, the ornamental sheath for holding a knife that he's holding, tells us in Latin that he is in his 29th year so we know then that he is 28 in this painting. We're very lucky that this man wrote lots of letters to his brother, which still exist today, and which tell us a lot about his life. Sadly, though, his letters don't mention anything about this painting or Hans Holbein. In 1533, the year that this painting was made, Dantfield's letters show that he was in London as the French King Francis's ambassador. His job required that he visited London several times during his career, but on this occasion he had to stay much longer than he wanted. And he did not hide how very unhappy he was about it. So unhappy that he very dramatically wrote to his brother, I am and have been very weary and wearisome. I am the most melancholy, weary and wearisome ambassador in the world. The reason that John de Dampville was so fed up was a combination of the bad British weather, an ongoing illness and homesickness for the beautiful chateau that he was renovating back in France. Being the French diplomat to England would also have been a particularly demanding and stressful job in 1533. That was the year that Henry VIII divorced Catherine of Aragon and married Anne Boleyn. The Pope had refused to annul Henry's marriage to Catherine of Aragon and so he made the momentous decision to break with the Roman Catholic Church and create the Church of England. In the year of 1533, religious and political relationships between England and Europe were at breaking point, a testing time to be the French ambassador to England. But Dantville, being educated, close to and trusted by the French king, was given the challenging task of maintaining positive relationships between France and England. On top of everything else, Dantville complained about the amount of money he had to spend on outfits for himself and his staff for Anne Boleyn's coronation in June that year, as well as the expense of hosting a banquet for the event. 
To make things even worse for the poor ambassador who was pining for home, Anne Boleyn fell pregnant and Dantville was told that he had to stay in London even longer. His visit was extended until September that year, after the birth of Elizabeth I, because the French King Francis was to become her godfather. The other man in the painting is less ostentatiously, but just as expensively dressed. He wears a rich chestnut-coloured fur under a sumptuous brown coat, which is made from the very expensive damask fabric, which is created by weaving silk into a raised design. Again, we know this man's age, 24 years, because it is written on the edge of the book that his arm rests on. He has been identified as Georges de Selve, Bishop of Lavaure, which is in the southwest of France. Later on in his life, Georges would also become an ambassador to various countries on behalf of the French King Francis. Dantville mentions Georges de Selve in his letters, telling his brother how much his friend's visit has cheered him up. Nobody knows what Georges de Selves was doing in England at the time, although we know from some of his previous activity that he was very concerned with trying to defend and unite the Catholic Church, which was threatened with a split due to various factions across Europe. This is important as it gives us a clue about what Holbein is telling us through the objects he includes in the painting. Between the two men is a table with two shelves displaying a whole range of different objects. They certainly show that Dantville and de Selve were intelligent men and had a wide range of interests, but it is generally believed that they also tell us what was going on in the world at the time. On the top shelf, all of the objects are to do with measuring things beyond planet Earth. So there is, for example, a globe that shows the constellations of the stars, a special sundial that measures the height of the sun, a quadrant which tells you the time of day and gives latitude and longitude, and so on. On the bottom shelf, all of the objects refer to the world around us. A globe, a compass used to measure distances on maps, musical instruments and books. Interestingly, right at the centre of the globe, you can make out the place name of Policy, and which was the location of Dantville's beloved chateau, where this painting hung for 200 years. There has been endless amounts written about what these objects mean and why they are shown alongside these two men. The dates and times shown on the measuring instruments on the top shelf have been analysed in detailed attempts to show some sort of hidden meaning. But in fact, all of the times are set differently and the consensus is that it is this that is significant. The inconsistencies between the times shown on the objects are symbolic of the disparities between England and Europe at that time. Other details point to similar symbolism. For example, the globe on the bottom shelf is upside down. The lute with a broken string and a set of flutes with one missing are common symbols of discord in artworks of the 1500s. 
There are also more overt references to difficult relationships and splits between England and Europe, including the maths book next to Dantville, which is opener to page about division, and the hymn book showing the music and lyrics to two songs about Christian unity. Although we're analysing and interpreting the symbolism of the objects on display, don't forget also to notice the incredible talent that Holbein shows in his painting of them. The lute, in particular, is shown at a very difficult angle to paint. But Holbein's piece de resistance in demonstrating his astonishing talent is reserved for the strange grey and brown object which slices the bottom centre of the painting at an angle. If you stand to the right of the painting and look at it side on, you can see that this is transformed into a skull which moves to become distorted as you walk back to look at the painting face on. We have no idea how Holbein managed to paint this, although at the time there were books on this technique, which is called anamorphosis. And we also know that other artists, including Leonardo, experimented with it. Why did Holbein paint the skull in this way? Nobody knows the answer to that question. He obviously wanted to show off his skills to get recognition as a great artist and more commissions for paintings. And this worked, as Holbein's highly successful career as an artist included painting Henry VIII and several of the king's wives. The other question about this skull is why whoever commissioned the painting wanted it only to be recognisable from an angle. Again, nobody knows for certain, but perhaps the painting was to be hung by a doorway or next to a staircase where people would see it from the side. Skulls were commonly shown in paintings at that time, particularly in portraits as a reminder that the people shown in the painting, just like everyone else, will eventually die, no matter how well educated, high status and beautifully dressed they are. It was believed that by showing this awareness within their portraits, they would appear humble and less arrogant. In this particular painting, look closely at Dantville's cap and see that there is also a skull in his hat badge. The diplomat's motto was Memento Mori, which in Latin literally means, remember, you must die. This perhaps explains why the large, partly hidden skull is included at the bottom centre of the painting. One further symbolic element of this painting is the floor, which is believed to be a copy of the medieval mosaic in the Westminster Abbey. This part of the Abbey's floor represents the universe. So whilst the two men stand at the centre of the universe trying to fix the political and religious divisions which exist in Europe, the skulls remind us that we will all die anyway, and none of it really matters. Lastly, but much written about, is the small silver crucifix with the body of Jesus just peeking side-on from behind the green curtain at the top left of the painting. This is a reminder of the possibility of salvation after death. There is so much to read into this puzzle of a painting. Death looms large as a theme, 
But this may be because in the 1500s, when plagues and other fatal diseases wiped out huge swathes of the population quickly, people were surrounded by death and much more preoccupied with it than they are now. The artist Holbein himself died of the plague at around the age of 45 years. For those of us standing in front of the painting 500 years after it was made, the complex symbolism and technical brilliance encourage us to contemplate our own inevitable death and the ongoing division caused by political and religious differences. But Hans Holbein has his own message to us, and that is that although life is short, his genius as an artist will live on forever through this wonderful painting. Next, we are jumping ahead by a hundred years and we're going to Spain in the mid-1600s to look at the Roque Venus by Diego Velázquez. You can find this painting in room 30. So as ever, pause the podcast now and restart it when you've arrived in front of that painting. You should now be standing in front of the Toilette of Venus, otherwise known as the Rokeby Venus, painted by Diego Velázquez, sometime between 1647 and 1651. There is no other painting in the National Gallery that is so mysterious and alluring and that has aroused such intense emotion. Nobody knows where this artwork was painted or for whom. We have a rough idea when it was painted and we know that it was made in very strange circumstances which I'll go on to tell you about. When you're looking at any painting you'll tend to look at things within it in a certain order. The artist very cleverly makes this happen so that parts of the painting are revealed in the way that works best to tell the story. The first thing you notice as you look at this painting is the beautiful curve of the woman's hip. Velázquez has put this smack bang in the centre of the painting. Once the hip has drawn you in, you follow the outlines of the woman's body, your eyes taking in all of her curves, her spine and her outstretched leg. Velázquez makes sure you focus on her body by illuminating her skin against the background and seducing you with its glowing, strokeable, pearly softness. Velázquez has done this deliberately because if you go up close to the painting, you will see how carefully he has painted the skin. The paint is blended beautifully so you can't see any brush strokes, compared, for example, to the roughly painted pink ribbon hanging from the mirror. Once you have taken in the woman's entire body, you'll find that your eyes are drawn to her head and then the blurred reflection of her face in the mirror, which we'll come on to later. Finally, you'll see the young boy holding up the mirror whose wings tell us that he is Cupid, the god of love. It's because of him and the mirror that we know the woman's identity, Venus, Cupid's mother and the goddess of love, beauty, desire and sex. During the 1600s and earlier, a naked or scantily clad Venus was often shown looking into a mirror held by Cupid. But this is different. She is usually wearing expensive looking jewellery, surrounded by sumptuous furs and gold 
and accompanied by assistants styling her hair and helping her dress. And before this painting, she was never shown from behind, which makes this representation of Venus all the more titillating. If you can't see the front of the woman's body, then you begin to imagine what it looks like, searching for clues, such as, in this case, the slight blushing of her cheeks. Of course, we do have some clue about what she looks like because of the reflection of her face in the mirror. This is slightly puzzling. Some have said that her face is blurry, others that it is disappointing, and some that she looks older than her body implies. So here we have the first controversy about this painting, as we're challenged to think about how we define beauty, how we view women's ageing faces, particularly when we consider that this painting was made by a man, and most definitely made for a man. A man who wanted to look at the curves of a young and beautiful woman. Lots has been written about whether the woman in this painting is submissive or empowered. Notice, for example, that she seems to be looking right back at you through the reflection in the mirror, as though she is aware of the judgment you're making about her. No one knows for definite, though, why she is looking or why her face seems to be out of focus. Perhaps Velazquez was making a point about youth not lasting forever. Or perhaps he was just trying to be mysterious. Or maybe he was trying to conceal her identity. Because although we know the woman is Venus, it's only Cupid in the mirror that tells us this. And the natural hairstyle, compared to the elaborate braids or long flowing locks of the usual painted Venuses, makes you think that this could be a real nude woman, with Cupid and the mirror added to make it look respectable. But why would this secrecy be necessary? Well, we know that this painting was in Madrid in Spain in 1651. This is the first date that we know that the painting existed, as it was listed in an inventory that its owner had made. This was the time of the Spanish Inquisition, when the Catholic Church used brutal methods to ban all religions except for Catholicism in order to shore up the power of the Spanish monarchy. The powerful Catholic Church had also banned paintings of nude women. The Church strongly disapproved of the reasons that people might want to look at these paintings. At the time of this painting, it was actually illegal to own or paint a nude. In fact, artists who painted naked women were exiled from the country. What makes this illicit artwork so fascinating is that it was painted by the most powerful artist in Spain at the time and the official painter of the Spanish king, Philip IV. If you look around this gallery, you'll see several paintings of many that Velázquez made documenting the king's life. So why would Velázquez want to take the risk of making an illegal painting, potentially losing his high-profile job which he had worked so hard to achieve and being ejected from his beloved Madrid where he had spent the majority of his life? Sadly, we don't really know the answer to this question although people have spent a lot of time searching for clues and speculating. 
We know, for example, that Velazquez spent a couple of years in Italy just before 1651, and it was rumoured that perhaps the artist made a painting inspired by Italian Renaissance pictures of Venus of a woman he had fallen in love with. The background to the nude is very bare and ordinary, as if it was perhaps painted in an artist's studio with Velazquez's muse as a life model. Interestingly, the case for this being a real person rather than a representation of the mythological goddess is strengthened by the 1651 inventory, which recalls it as a nude woman rather than Venus. This inventory was made following the death of the owner, whose identity gives us no pointers to explain why the painting was made or the identity of the woman. In fact, the owner was a very obscure art dealer who owned a collection of paintings of very little interest. So it's quite odd that he was in possession of this artwork made by the painter to the king. Many years later, this provocative painting ended up in the collection of a Spanish prime minister and favourite of the king, who was known for his womanising and interest in art. The artwork became part of the Prime Minister's large collection of paintings of naked women, some of which were very explicit. In 1813, during the war that followed Napoleon's invasion of Spain, the painting was smuggled out of the country and sold to a British MP in North Yorkshire. The MP, John Morritt, was proud of his painting, which hung at his home in Rokeby Park, hence the name by which the painting is now known, describing it in a letter as a fine picture of Venus's backside. Around a 100 years later, and less than a decade after the painting was bought by the National Gallery, it became the subject of yet another controversy. Slasher Mary, as she became known to the newspapers, attacked the painting with a meat cleaver, making five slashes to Venus's body and causing a lot of damage. Mary Richardson was immediately arrested and sentenced to six months in prison for malicious damage. In the aftermath, she stated that she had attacked the painting to protest against the arrest of the suffragette Emmeline Pankhurst. She'd chosen this Venus by Velasquez because in her words, I didn't like the way men visitors to the gallery gaped at it all day. But Mary Richardson's feminist heroism was not straightforward, as she later became a disciple to the fascist Oswald Mosley. This painting of the rear view of a woman with glorious curves and luminous skin is the subject of endless intrigue and fascination, and has caused so much controversy during its 370-year history. Perhaps this is why it is the only surviving nude by Velazquez. And what a story it tells us today. We are now going to look at a famous English painter of landscapes, John Constable. The next painting in this tour is the Haywain, which is in room 34. Pause the podcast now and restart it when you're looking at the Haywain. So I hope that you're now standing in front of John Constable's The Haywain which was painted in 1821. To our 21st century eyes, this painting looks old-fashioned and also typically English, 
But in fact, at the time it was painted, it was very radical. And despite the idyllic countryside scene, like so many other paintings in the National Gallery, the turbulent social, economic and political backdrop to this artwork makes you wonder about the reason that Constable chose to paint this tranquil view. This is the third of a series of what Constable called his six-footers, all large paintings of the countryside or landscapes in which people are working. The view is of Flatford Mill Pond in Suffolk, which served a water mill used to grind corn. The water mill itself isn't in the painting, but we get just a peek of the edge of its red brick wall on the far right of the artwork. John Constable was very familiar with this view as it's about a mile from where he was born and he spent much of his childhood right there where you're looking. The Constable family had worked at the mill for around a hundred years by the time this painting was made. They knew the farmer, who was called Willie Lott, who lived in the house that you can see on the left of the painting. That farmhouse still exists and you can go and visit today and see that the landscape has barely changed since it was painted by Constable 200 years ago. In the middle of the mill pond is a wooden cart. This explains the name of the painting as wain is an old English word for a cart which was used to move hay that had been cut and dried in a meadow to a barn where it would be stored and fed to animals over the winter. The empty cart seems to be heading towards the meadow in the middle right section of the painting, where you can see the haymakers working in the distance. The cart may have stopped in the shallow part of the pond so that the horses could have a drink. But as somebody who knew about country life wrote to tell the National Gallery, wooden wheels were often soaked in the water so that they swelled to fit their iron frames. And perhaps this is what's happening in the scene at Flatford Mill Pond. So what is so special about this very ordinary scene? Well, one thing is that it's very different to the landscape paintings of Constable's English contemporaries, who included smokestacks, steam trains and other evidence of the country's industrialisation in their artwork. You can see that in the work of Turner, which is in the same gallery. The Haywain was actually painted in London, where Constable lived at the time. London was the world's wealthiest and most powerful city when Constable lived there, but it was also a filthy, crowded and polluted city. London's place at the centre for global trade and finance had sent people to live in the capital in their droves. In the hundred years preceding this painting, the population of London had more than doubled. As well as being incredibly densely populated, causing disease and crime to be rife, the new factories of the Industrial Revolution constantly pumped out coal smoke. Perhaps this scene shows Constable's longing for the clean air and spaciousness of the glorious English countryside and his nostalgia for a life before the rapid transformational changes brought about by industrialisation. Global trade and industrialisation weren't the only changes taking place at the time that Constable was painting his six-footer landscapes. He lived through tempestuous times politically and socially too. After the triumph over Napoleon at the Battle of Waterloo in 1815, thwarting the French emperor's ambitions to invade Britain, 
Britain entered economic recession. The Napoleonic Wars had been incredibly costly. Furthermore, unemployment and a bad harvest led to exceptionally high food prices, made worse by the Corn Laws imposed by the Prime Minister Lord Liverpool in 1815. These laws banned the import of grain from overseas so that people were forced to use what was grown in Britain. But the effect was to make things worse for ordinary people as the price of bread became unaffordable. All of this led to riots and protests. Meanwhile, people were also beginning to become disgruntled about being ruled by the aristocracy and there was some agitation aimed at getting the vote. After all, only 11% of male adults could vote at that time. A series of large protests seeking changing the voting laws took place, followed by Lord Liverpool introducing harsh and repressive laws in an attempt to stop this radicalism. Sadly, the situation came to a head in a tragic way. In 1819, two years before Constable painted the hayway, a massive public meeting took place in Manchester. In what became known as the Peterloo Massacre, Soldiers attacked the crowds, killing 11 people and wounding many more. You would never know from Constable's peaceful painting that there was so much discord, hunger and misery suffered by the population at that time. Was the artist yearning, albeit maybe through rose-tinted glasses, for the tranquility of the olden days and the familiarity of his rural upbringing? Constable's Haywain was exhibited at the prestigious but very traditional Royal Academy, which is now on Piccadilly in London, but in 1821 was in Somerset House, which is on the Strand on the north side of the Waterloo Bridge. It was unsuccessful, however, and didn't get sold. People weren't interested in the Haywain because it looked totally different to the landscape paintings that were in fashion at the time which were painted to a particular formula. There were stock ways to paint the clouds, established methods for painting the bark of oak trees and certain colours that were always used. Landscape paintings were typically very brown because artists were trying to copy old master's paintings that had existed for hundreds of years in rooms that were smoky from open fires so the artworks had become muddy and dirty looking. Constable hated the copying and painting by numbers approach. He wanted to paint what he really saw out in nature. And this is what he achieved. According to meteorologists, for example, the clouds and the sky that you see in the painting are accurate. Constable had originally titled this painting Landscape Noon, rather than the Haywain by which we know it now. This suggests that he wanted to show the sky and the scene bathed in the light of a particular time of day. And the bright green of the foliage is much more realistic than the murky browns used by many landscape painters at that time. Ironically, however... For all its realism, this is the most manufactured of paintings. Rather than at Flatford Mill, 
Constable painted this in his London studio from a series of sketches he had made over the years. He didn't have a sketch of the Haywain itself, so he had to ask somebody back in Suffolk to make one and send it to him in London. For this reason, the cart that you see in the painting isn't actually a bona fide Haywain, but a cart used to transport logs. Fortunately, however, Constable's painting was appreciated, but it was the French who were wowed by the English landscape. A famous French painter called Géricault saw the Haywain at the Royal Academy and returned to France apparently quite stunned by it. Constable subsequently agreed to sell the painting to an Anglo-French dealer and it was exhibited at the 1824 Paris Salon, one of the most celebrated and high-status exhibitions in the world. The painting caused a sensation. The realness of the countryside captured French hearts, with one viewer exclaiming that he could feel the dew in the scene. Constable was awarded a gold medal by the French King Charles X and his paintings went on to influence many artists, including the famous French Impressionist painters. Constable was, according to the curator of the Louvre in Paris at the time, nothing less than the Messiah of landscape painting. We're now going to look at a French painting by Georges Seurat called The Bathers at Asnières. The artwork is in room 43, so pause the podcast now and restart it when you're standing in front of the painting. I hope you're now looking at the bathers at Asnières, painted by Georges Seurat in 1884. You wouldn't think that this painting of a sunny, relaxing scene on the banks of the River Seine could be a commentary on the division and tension within Parisian society. Yet, the context of unprecedented social, economic and technological change taking place in Paris at the time, plus an awareness of one of Sohar's other paintings, gives us a whole new perspective. Below the tranquility of this scene, class struggle is brewing. The painting shows men and boys hanging out in the sun near to the Asnières Bridge, which still exists northwest of the centre of Paris. Their clothes, the bowler hats, boots and sleeveless vest, and the slumped postures of the nearest men and boys tell us that they are working class. In the background is a railway bridge and the smoking polluted chimneys of the gas plant and factories at Clichy, a Parisian suburb. Sura is showing us that when not on their day off, as we see them in this painting, these men and boys work at the filthy factories in the distance. At the time of this painting, Paris was growing at great pace. The Industrial Revolution, expanded railways and scientific advancement meant that new industries were sprouting up in the suburbs of Paris. The need for skilled and unskilled labour in these factories, plus rural poverty, meant that huge numbers of people were flocking to the city for work. At the time of this painting, around one third of the population of Paris was born outside of the city. It's an odd scene. The boys and young men look glum and absorbed in their own thoughts. No one is doing very much. There's no actual swimming 
or any of the games or fun activities, such as ball games or picnics, that you might today expect from people relaxing in a park by the river on a sunny day off. In fact, none of the figures are talking to each other or even engaging with each other. They look almost frozen, as if told to stay still while the painting is made. Because of the stillness and despite the glorious weather, the atmosphere of the painting is almost sombre. The mood that Sohar creates is a very different feel to some of the other paintings of people at leisure made by artists around the same time. You can see some of these in room 41. Monet's bathers at La Grunouillère, for example, shows people swimming and chatting to their friends along the river. A painting by Renoir called Le Skiff also focuses on leisure and in the same part of the river as this Sora painting. But two women rowing a boat are much more active than the men and the boys in this painting. Sora seems to have deliberately chosen to create this mood. He made many sketches in preparation for this painting, some of which are on display in the gallery. He had clearly toyed with showing a range of different activities. His sketches include people chatting, swimmers and horses being washed in the water. The patch of sand that you can see in the middle of the riverbank are where the horses were led down to the water to bathe or drink. And again, this is another sign that this is a scene of the working class. Horses would never have been washed in the river in the area where the middle classes were relaxing on a sunny day. We also know that although it looks like the men and boys are sitting in a well-maintained park, when Sohar made this painting, behind the figures, the backdrop was run-down houses, boatyards, workshops and cheap cafes. So where were the Parisian bourgeoisie on this bright, hot day? Well, there is a clue in the painting. In the middle of the right-hand side, you can see a couple in a boat with the French tricolour flag and they're being rowed to the other side. We know that this couple are of a different class to the men and boys who dominate the painting because both are fully clothed despite the obvious heat. The man wearing a top hat and the woman has a parasol. Because we know exactly where this scene is located, we also know that this couple are headed towards the Ile de la Grande Jatte, an island in the middle of the River Seine, a spot well used by the middle classes. As Paris had changed to encourage an influx of the working class, so it had also transformed for those with money. In the middle of the 19th century, Napoleon III commissioned an urban planner called Baron Hausmann to revolutionise central Paris. Demolishing the old medieval streets in the poorest neighbourhoods, he made way for the grand boulevards, the symmetrical layout and the fabulous views that we see in the city today. Not only did this mean that the poorest and working class Parisians were moved out from the centre to the edges of the city, but Hausmann also built parks, squares and gardens, including the one on the Ile de la Grande Jatte for the bourgeoisie to take a stroll. And we know what that looked like because Sora also painted what was happening on the other side of the river, where the two toffs are being rowed to. 
this is a painting which is now in the Art Institute of Chicago called Sunday Afternoon on the Island of the Grand Jatte. In that painting, which is a similar large size, people promenade, sit in groups or fish in the water. But those people are dressed in the clothes of the middle class. Fancy hats, long skirts and suit jackets. But as with this painting, all is not as it seems. Again, the figures seem to be frozen still. But in the formal poses of people who understand how the bourgeois are supposed to behave. On this side of the river, where the working class hang out, the men and boys gaze across towards their bosses and those who made money from industrialisation in the new factories, the expansion of the railways and from a new focus on public education. What's curious about this painting is that Seurat shows this unexceptional scene on such a large canvas. Usually, paintings on this scale were reserved for important scenes from history, such as battles, or for portraits of royalty. So why the scale that puts working class men and boys at their leisure on a par with the great works on display in the national museums and palaces? Well, Seurat seems to be responding to radical politicians and writers of the day who had called for painters to show the working classes in their leisure time. There were already many artists such as Van Gogh who painted the hard and merciless life of rural peasants and the brutal conditions of the urban poor. In fact, you can see the weary face of Van Gogh's peasant woman in this same room. Previously in art, working people at leisure had been the subject of comedy or scorn, generally focusing on drunkenness, prostitution and criminality. Here, however, Seurat gives working people their dignity, not just through the size of the painting, but also through applying the traditional art training he had received in Paris, where he had learned to draw from Greek and Roman sculptures. Several of these figures' poses are the same as those of the ancient sculptures, such as the boy standing in the water with his hand cupped to his mouth, who is copied from a statue of Triton, the Greek god of water, blowing his conch shell. At the time of this painting, Paris was home to the richest people in France, but also the poorest, with more than 70% of the population living in poverty or even destitution. The injustice of this, unavoidable to the rich and poor who lived and worked cheek by jowl, led to social unrest and violent uprisings. In 1871, only 13 years before this painting was completed, the Paris Commune, a revolutionary government, seized power in the capital for three months and a period of martial law followed. Some of the people in this painting would have lived through this, but all would have been very aware of the attention and the iniquity. Perhaps this explains their solemn expressions as they look across the river at the well-to-do. Suha, who took a scientific approach to his work and a great interest in colour theory, is best known for creating a new painting technique called pointillism, in which paintings were made with tiny dots of colour. You can see the beginnings of pointillism in the grass of this painting. There are dots of 
pure colour, including yellow, pink, blue and orange. Yet our eye mixes these colours together and from a distance we see the vivid grass green of summer meadows. It's not until his later paintings, however, such as the channel of the Graveline, which is also in this room, that Seurat made his entire painting using the pointillist technique. Whilst clearly a technical innovator, I think it's the social commentary on 19th century Paris, class segregation and inequality that is most interesting about this painting. Seurat, clearly, was on the side of the workers. Whilst the figures in both this painting and the Grand Jatte in Chicago are static and frozen like statues, the working class bathers are at least sitting and lounging in a natural way that is much less constrained by social norms and etiquette than in his painting of the middle class. It's as though Seurat is saying through the stillness in these paintings that society, the pace of change and the political climate is out of everybody's hands, but at least the workers are not so restricted by the customs and expectations of their class. It took Seurat two years to paint this huge canvas and he finished it just before he turned 25. He wanted to use this first major painting of his to make a name at the Parisian Salon in 1884. This was the most important annual event in the Western art world. Each year, artists and sculptors submitted works to the judging panel and acceptance, or not, into the exhibition could make or break an artist's career. Unfortunately, the Salon rejected Seurat's painting. But as we've glimpsed from this artwork, Seurat didn't think much of the establishment and so he exhibited the painting at the rebellious and much more equitable Salon of the Independent Artists instead. Seurat died young, at only 31, possibly of pneumonia or meningitis. But what a huge impact he had on the future of art, defying convention and shaping the work of groundbreaking artists such as Vincent van Gogh. In fact, the next painting, and the last one in this podcast tour, is by Vincent van Gogh himself. We're going to be looking at his very famous sunflowers, which you can find in this same room, number 43. Press pause and begin the podcast again when you're in front of that painting. standing in front of Vincent van Gogh's sunflowers painted in 1888. Probably the most famous painting in the National Gallery. You will usually need to elbow your way to the front of a crowd to see it up close. But why is this painting so famous and why do people flock to see it? What's so interesting about this bunch of sunflowers in a vase some of them losing their petals and looking way past their best. It's mainly because of the personality and life of the artist Vincent van Gogh. Western art history is bursting with stories of the tortured artist, often living in poverty, Frequently hard-drinking, drug-using and suffering from mental illness, these writers, poets and painters were considered geniuses, 
tormented by their artistic and personal frustrations. Van Gogh was a perfect example of this stereotype. Born in Holland, we know a lot about Van Gogh because he was a prolific letter writer, communicating with his younger brother who gave him money to live for most of his adult life. We have first-hand accounts of his periods of religious devotion, his arguments with his parents, his inability to hold down a job and his unrequited loves. At the age of 27 years, Van Gogh decided to become an artist. But only 10 years later, after periods of severe depression, the artist took his own life. The sunflowers were painted during a rare period of optimism in Van Gogh's short life. Initially, he had painted dark scenes of hard rural toil and poverty. But after seeing the work of other artists during a stay in Paris, Van Gogh began to use brighter colours. After Paris, Van Gogh moved to the south of France where he painted the sunflowers, capturing the bright, radiant sunlight of his new home in the yellow of his painting. The sunflower symbolises devotion and loyalty in Dutch literature and, in turning its large, brightly coloured face to the sun, it is the most optimistic of flowers. So why did Van Gogh feel so optimistic when he painted the sunflowers? The reason was that he planned to set up an artistic community in the south of France and another famous artist of the period, Paul Gauguin, had agreed to come and share Van Gogh's yellow house. Sunflowers was made, along with three other similar paintings, to decorate Gauguin's bedroom. This version is one of only two that Van Gogh considered good enough to be hung on the wall of the bedroom. As well as expressing his optimistic frame of mind through the yellow of the sunflowers, Van Gogh was experimenting with colour. Previous versions of the painting had shown a blue background. Blue and yellow are complementary colours, meaning that they are more vivid when painted next to each other because of their contrast. However, on comparing the different versions, Van Gogh judged the painting seemed more radiant and brighter when he limited the colours to three shades of yellow and little else. When you look at the yellow flowers against the zingy lemon wall of this painting, I think you'll agree that Van Gogh was right. Van Gogh's friend Gauguin was keen to own one of the sunflowers decorating his room while the two artists lived together. He said that it was a perfect page of an essential Vincent, so very typical of Van Gogh's style. Perhaps this is why The Sunflowers is the most famous of Van Gogh's paintings, reproduced on everything from fridge magnets and tea towels to scarves and bags. But along with this joyful sunny yellow, the painting hints at the difficulties of Van Gogh's life. The complete cycle of life is on display in the painting, from bud to fully bloomed flower to the spiky drooping seed head. In the months following his painting of the sunflowers, Van Gogh suffered a number of breakdowns caused by mental illness. It quickly became apparent that he and Gauguin had very different views on art, leading to many rows between the two of them. The tension came to a head when Gauguin decided to leave the house and a distraught Van Gogh threatened his fellow artist with the razor. 
Later that evening, the incident for which Van Gogh is best known took place. Slicing off his own ear at the Yellow House, Van Gogh wrapped it in newspaper and presented it to a prostitute in the nearby red light district. Following this incident, and despite his terrible suffering, Van Gogh continued to paint whilst enduring hallucinations and confusion caused by anxiety and depression. Eventually, his illness led him to being admitted to a psychiatric hospital. In July 1890, at the age of only 37 years, and racked by money worries, Van Gogh died, having shot himself in the chest. His time in the south of France had been intensely productive, with 180 paintings made in an 18-month period. One of these paintings was the sunflowers that you see in front of you now. However, despite his exhausting artistic output, Van Gogh had no success during his lifetime, selling only one painting before he died. It's a tragic and heartbreaking story, made even more poignant by the fact that Van Gogh would never know just how popular his paintings are today. We have now come to the end of our podcast tour of the six must-see paintings in the National Gallery in London. I hope you've enjoyed it and learned something new. I also hope that it helps you to look at other artworks in this and in other galleries. You should now, for example, be able to think about what emotions the artist is trying to convey in the figures they paint. Does what they are wearing or the objects that surround them tell you anything about the people in the painting? Has the artist given you any clues in the background of the painting that tell you what the world is like at the time that the artwork was made? What was going on in the world at the time? And how might that have influenced the artist's choice of subject? How do the figures or the colours used in the painting make you feel? What might this tell you about the artist? If you would like longer tours of the National Gallery or other galleries around the world, please look up Painting Stories Podcast on Patreon and also follow Painting Stories Podcast on Instagram and Facebook. I hope to see you soon.